Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to a math-focused episode of Software Gone Wild. Not so long ago, we said, well, let's try to expand what IPSpace is doing a little bit and were introduced to this great lady that writes this awesome blog, Math Apocalypse or something. I never get that right. And we did the first webinar on graph theory together and the responses were, this is awesome. We have to get more of this. We need math in networking. So we decided to do a podcast with her. And today with us is Rachel Trailer. Welcome. Hello, thank you. First, let's get URL for your blog right, because I probably messed it up. The website is www.themathcitadel.com or mathcitadel.com, either one. So Math Citadel, as in if you're a Game of Thrones fan, Citadel. And then the Twitter handle is at Mathpocalypse, which is really the only social media I use anymore, that and email. Okay, so I messed them up. I knew it. When you're not blogging or doing webinars or tweeting, and some of your tweets are phenomenal, by the way, everyone should follow her, by the way. What are you doing? I do research in both pure and applied mathematics. So my background is in probability theory and reliability theory. So a mathematician would tell you there's a difference between a statistician and a probability theorist. Statisticians tend to be a little more concerned. Statisticians are applied probability theorists. So what I do is I look at some of the theoretical stuff that lies underneath even statistical theory and sometimes applications beyond statistics. So probability shows up a lot in quantum mechanics. It shows up in physics. It shows up in even physical engineering like network engineering. Another application is queuing theory, which is another research interest of mine. As far as specific research interests, I don't know if people are actually interested in specifics of what I'm doing. But there's some stuff on the website as far as the applied projects that I work on and the theoretical work of interest lately has been the idea of structural dependence and sequences of random variables. I gave a recent lecture on that at Marquette just a couple of days ago. And you totally lost me with this last two sentences. Luckily, your blogs are way more approachable than this. I know that I read a few on was it coding schemes in storage? That was really fun read. Yeah, I try to write articles that are a little bit more mass appealing. One thing that I've thought always seemed a little bit lacking is there's lots of blogs and material out there for students, right? College and down. And we'll call it like for kids, right? There's look at this pretty fractal, look at this other interesting thing. I always felt like professional adults were ignored. The topics that would be considered advanced mathematics, like a little bit beyond calculus, or even just things you wouldn't see until college, like abstract algebra, which has applications in coding theory and storage, or you know, singular continuous distributions was one of my more theoretical ones, or even just looking at finite field arithmetic, which again also shows up in coding theory, but isn't really talked about much. I always felt like it was lacking. There's resources for more advanced mathematics in a friendly fashion aimed at adults. You know, working professionals that have some experience under their belt and probably have seen some of this math. I mean, most of you guys have probably had at least probably through differential equations. It's not like you're math illiterate or anything. There's just topics that most engineers probably haven't seen 
that you would find interesting and especially networking uh, apply to your job. So I try to write on stuff like that. Some of it's just stuff that interests me that I find. That's mostly what it is. I just found this interesting. So you are trying to do something like theoretical minimum for mathematicians. I'm trying. What I'm trying to do is pure mathematics. And I'll use, I'll borrow from Hardy, who wrote something called the Mathematician's Apology back in the 50s. The poor guy was hounded for his entire career. He was a number theorist about how useless his work was, which as anyone who has ever looked at anything in cryptography knows, that's sadly, I mean, it's not true, right? Number theory is pretty much what makes cryptography work. But during his career, he was hounded for it constantly. And so he wrote something called a mathematician's apology, which was a, well, in his case, rather bitter plea for you know, essentially that pure mathematics is something that is important. And the best way to sum up the entire book, which is worth a read, by the way, is all mathematics is applied eventually. And my goal is to just show that to adults, not just to show parlor tricks to children. I think I remember that guy from BBC Radio 4 podcast, if I remember correctly. It was one of their podcasts, and I don't know whether it was in our time or something else, where they went through exactly this, how, you know, something that seemed totally useless at the time turned out to be extremely useful when we started doing asymmetrical keys and things like that. Yes. Another good example is, I mean, the most famous one would be Boolean logic or Boolean arithmetic. Obviously, your computers don't work without it. Your electrical circuits don't really work without it. But 100 years before that, it was applied by Shannon. When it was invented, again, Bull got a lot of comments, even from other mathematicians, that this is completely useless. I have no idea why you care about things that only have two outputs. This is absolutely worthless. Obviously, that's not true. Fourier analysis is another one, too. That one, for those of you guys that might have done amateur radio or wireless stuff, any kind of signal processing, probably at least have heard the term Fourier analysis. There's entire courses on it. I myself have, if I just take a look at my shelf, five different books on Fourier analysis alone. But even the same thing, you know, engineers and other funding organizations looked at him as why you're taking a function and approximating it by an infinite sum of trigonometric things. Why do we care? Well, it turns out we have a lot of reasons to care. So ask an acoustics engineer why you care about that. So there's a lot of examples. And for me, you know, part of the reason I write is because I find things interesting. And in some of my own readings that explore beyond my research interests, I just like to read things. And so I write them if I find something interesting. And the other one is just to show that mathematics has used beyond simply being utilitarian. And there is more to mathematics than just calculus, arithmetic, and pretty fractals. And now that you mentioned Fourier transforms, they are behind all the high-speed coding schemes. So wherever you try to squeeze too much information onto a medium, you need some fancy coding scheme, and they usually involve digital signal processing, and digital signal processing is more or less all Fourier transforms going one way or another. So it probably would surprise a lot of engineers to hear how much flack Fourier got during his lifetime for his work on that. And a lot of these mathematicians actually didn't see any of their work applied. And, you know, it was applied long after they were dead. It's a hazard of the trade. Hazard of the trade. Here, Jill, this is Ed Horley. It's a great time to introduce the rest of the crew. You've all heard Ed Horley. 
you'll probably have some cloud and IPv6 aspects of math to discuss. Then we have Chris Young, who will probably try to map math into SNMP. I won't do it. Okay, and last but definitely not least, Russ White, who will probably map math into his complexity theories, right? That's right. That's the important thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ed, you were saying? It just made me laugh because um, my youngest is actually, she's a senior in high school and I was just finishing up helping with some, with some AP math and it's all the integration for under the curve. And I'm like, oh yeah, I did all this in engineering school. I need to dust all this off again. But I think most folks in the engineering skill set, at least folks who are practitioners in the networking space, well, you did math formally in college and you certainly took it probably in engineering school. The day-to-day -day use of it diminishes pretty rapidly once you're actually out there sort of practically doing work. Because most of the work has been done once by a set of teams that are either writing code or have done a process for a design. And after that, most folks are in the operator consume mode as opposed to the, like build and do something interesting from a design basis. And there isn't a lot of design work that's really left in the space that has, a, you know, interesting math associated with it that you could do. I think part of the thing that sort of changed maybe in the industry is maybe there's a quick thing you can talk about about like sort of this new sort of DevOps related model and how much design work is going into that and how much coding is involved with it maybe is actually bringing to light a lot more interest around pure math. Because for me, I spent the last 20 years working on networking related stuff. How much pure math I did was very, very small in relationship to my original engineering skill, which is actually civil engineering. I spent a lot of time doing math in that one. So I don't know if that's something you've noticed. I don't know Ivan or Russ or or Chris, if you've noticed that too, but it feels like math is starting to come back in terms of an interest level for design and engineering in a way that it wasn't before. I would actually hope that we move away from being operator and consume quite as much in the network world and move much more towards actually designing and building things. I mean, we are called engineers for a reason. Oh, now you're triggering my rant. I don't know why we are called engineers because, you know, most of the time, we're just throwing spaghetti at wall and hoping something will stick. And most of the time, it's CLI, I know, or DevOps. But either way, it's configuration. We're actually not doing real. Well, for example, it totally annoys me that no one I met in networking circles was ever able to explain the basics of reliability theory. Like you have this leaf and spine fabric. You know that a switch will fail on average, once a year. What's the expected uptime of the fabric? No one has a clue how to even approach this problem. Well, thankfully, we're doing a webinar to fix it. <laughs> what I learned about that particular problem, though, was in my IPTEL days, looking at the Belcore standard, is that if you eliminate enough things from what you're going to count in your math, you can make anything five nines uptime. So I learned it was a marketing thing. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Like this is the yeah, Belcourt yeah. standard. 49 phones go down. That doesn't count because it's not above 51. So I learned at an early stage that some of the more pure math concepts, uh, the marketing people made them not apply. I'll refrain from letting that trigger my rant on how marketing is ruining everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on, go on. <laughs> so my background, I guess, I don't know how many people listen or follow me or whatever. You guys probably know mine, but other people may not. I used to work as a research scientist for Dell EMC. So I used to be in storage. That was an accident. I tripped into that. Before that, I've worked as a DBA for Lockheed. And, and among all that, I was collecting degrees. 
And what I've seen, so I've done the data science thing and I've literally, I've watched, you know, data science, we won't even get into AI because it's ill-defined and it's a junk word. Data science, machine learning. I have watched, essentially what's underneath that is just statistics and probability. But I have watched that turn into just morph into this weird, we care more about pretty dashboards and visualization and what people think of how the charts look, as opposed to the inherent instability of some of these models and focusing on actually develop statistics is a very young field in mathematical terms, maybe only about 150 years old. That's very young mathematically when you consider, you know, geometry has been around for thousands of years. So there's a lot of holes. And I'll say that there's a lot of holes in statistical theory. It's okay. It happens, right? You know, you figure out how to fly a rudimentary plane before you understand fluid dynamics. It happens. But the point of being a mathematician is we go back and fill those holes in. So if you have something like the central limit theorem, everyone loves it. It makes, I use z-scores and now everything's fixed. No, there are assumptions there that are very, very strict because it makes the math trackable enough to prove that theorem. That's why I work in probability because most things in life aren't independent, but yet most of your statistical decision theory relies on it. So if you keep building on what's essentially sandy ground, especially as your data sets get larger, that's how you see all these inherent stability issues in these large scale machine learning models. And yet we just keep feeding it more data and hope it all averages out in the end, I guess. And honestly, I feel like marketing is making it worse because instead of someone coming in and saying, I would like to take a step back, maybe slow down a little bit and think about these problems. No, 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 fail fast, quickly, fail fast. I've actually been in an interview and I'm 29 years old. I'll be 30 in February. I'm 29 years old and I had someone in an interview tell me that my master's in statistics is outdated. (laughs) That's awesome. Wow. I really would be better off if I had a master's or PhD in machine learning, but having a master's in statistics and a PhD in in mathematics is outdated and I am 29 years old. So to me, that's not a symptom of great progress. That's a symptom of a sickness. That's a problem. I see it as marketing. That is the entire network engineering world, unfortunately, it feels like most of the time. No, but Rachel, you got it just right where you said the inherent instability of the systems. Yeah. This will never get past marketing. Well, it's because it's kind of an ugly truth. I mean, even if you look at something like autonomous driving, you know, everybody likes that's the new sexy direction everybody wants to go. But the reality is, you know, a classifier is is kind of inherently unstable. And the other thing, especially about neural networks, is we don't understand from a mathematical perspective what's going on underneath that. When you actually start a neural network, you seed it, and then you run it and get an output, you have no idea what goes on in between. And anyone that tells you otherwise is full of crap. Because it's inherently unreproducible, right? That's the it is. principal and difference. In other words, if you start the same set of data in two sets of neural nets, you're probably high probability definition. You're not going to keep getting the same outputs over and over. So what we would call that in mathematics is a non-ergodic system. And from a design perspective, you shouldn't like that, right? It shouldn't Mm -hmm. matter what I seed it with. If everything is ergodic and stable, which is what you want in your designs, that's how you can end up with the funny stuff, which is, you know, like, look at these funny paint colors the AI came up with. And then the more serious ones of, well, we classified these people as likely to commit a crime, but how can you trust? There's funny to, to serious. And If you're not willing to really examine the fact that these sexy algorithms have an inherent instability to the point where it's worth studying, I have a theory, but I can't prove it. But I'm pretty sure if you studied the structure of some of these things, 
and I would look at it kind of from a dynamical systems point. Most of you guys might remember from calculus, especially when you get to multivariate calculus, is if you take a parabola and it's bending up like a bowl, if I put a little ball in that and it rolled, it would settle down at the bottom of the bowl and stay there. But if I flip the parabola upside down where it looks like a little hill and I put the ball at the top of the hill, a tiny flick to either side, the ball will roll off. Put that into three dimensions where in one direction, you basically have my bowl going up in the other direction. I have the parabola pointing down. It looks like a saddle now. So that's a saddle point. So what that means is depending on where the model might proceed, it may be stable. Or if it proceeds a slightly different direction, because we all deal in multivariate stuff, it becomes inherently unstable. So a saddle point is bad, right? It's not stable, but it's not inherently unstable. It depends on the direction it goes. I have a theory that if we actually really studied these structures, it would be possible to find inherent saddle points in those. And if I were in a sabotaging mood, I could go figure out what data would perturb it to flick it to the other side and ruin everything. Oh, people are actually doing that. Right. And some people are. I want, I'm looking at it more from a mathematical perspective. You can really say, like, I can actually tell you that this type of model has a structure like this with an inherent saddle point, depending on certain perturbations. You almost have an analytical way to say, it's going to be bad right here. I know how to sabotage it instead of just trying. But to see that formally done would kind of ruin the marketing aspect of AI is going to solve all our problems. Yeah. And coming back to what Ed was saying, the real problem with the neural networks is that it's just a mesh of things tied together and weights applied between them. Which you have to specify, by the way. Well, you feed input and correct output to the system and the weights are dynamically adjusted, but you don't understand what the system is doing because all you have are weights. You can't map that into something that you could explain to me. And I think what's more important is you could have the same weight characteristics with the same same neural network configuration in two locations running, right? With the same data, data shared set and not get the same output, yeah, which is exactly. really disturbing for anyone who, anyone who yeah. works in engineering. That's like, that's not a good thing. I guess maybe this will help clarify for folks that are listening, because I consider this sort of like the equilibrium problem. I always, I think when I learned this in school, it was like, when you hang a painting off two points with a single nail, you eventually reach an equilibrium state, but you have gravity working to your advantage to sort of stabilize it out from one direction of the curve. But the other one is that you can also balance a pencil on its tip and gravity's helping you to control that, but the equilibrium isn't stable, <laughs> right? That's an unstable equilibrium because any push one way or the other fall over, right? Can you actually do that? Yeah, you can technically do that. You might have to cheat a little bit and grind down the tip, but, <laughs> but the picture you don't have to worry about, right? It's stable from a stability standpoint for how you look at it. It was at least how I was taught about how to understand that you can have equilibrium, but you can have a stable equilibrium, you can have an unstable equilibrium. I like the engineering uh, description of that versus mine. See, mine, mine is like, it's a saddle point. But I like that there's a practice, like, this, I guess this is why I like talking to engineers, because I think in terms of stuff that's too abstract, it's a kind of an inherent problem for, of mine in communication. So your analogy is probably far more relatable than me just describing a mathematical saddle point. Yeah. So if you graph at the top end of the pencil moving back and forth is one of the saddle points and then the other side. And anyway, for a picture, the two bottom points for where you're actually attached to the picture versus the nail up above is the other side, right? And one side is stable. The other side isn't. Anyway, that's a fast, like quick thing. There's lots of examples of like that that are very similar. And I think part of the challenge is understanding how the, the applied portion of math, how that correlates to what you actually learn and do day to day versus what you're experiencing, Rachel, which is the theoretical and then applied, but then still at a, at a much higher abstraction level. That's the thing that mathematicians always 
impressed me with is their their ability to abstract away ideas into something that, you know, to be honest, I don't reach that point naturally in my exploration of math. It's much more like I'm, I was always the kid that uh, when I was trying to do integration under the curve, I'm always drawing graphs and trying to actually draw out the equation and trying X out X amount of squares <laughs> estimated versus doing the hard integration. So then how many of you, when you were learning physics, like the demonstrations, seeing, you know, the cart roll a certain way or, or whatever, how many of you guys like that was what, oh, now the equations make sense. Yeah, that's what helped me. I mean, the sheer moment diagrams are just a horror for me the first time until I actually understood what was going on when they actually showed like slow motion of like how the beam is bending and like showing you force equations as they move up once they were applied and then be like, oh, I get it. I understand what shear is. I understand what the value of shear is actually on that physical medium. And then the, the abstract concept made a heck of a lot more sense to me about what shear actually was. And then the moment portion actually made more sense in terms of sort of why shear derived. This is moment. That stuff, for me, the first time I went through engineering school, I was like, I don't understand what's going on here when it was just purely shown on the board. And I'm like, I, I don't understand how you're graphing this out. And then when we sat in the lab and actually, you know, you could see it actually happening, I was like, okay, I get it. I had a high school teacher, physics teacher, that made the application piece crystallize. And every test we had, uh, he had an absolute hatred for the Roadrunner. And every test we had was applied physics of how the coyote could push something, just simple gravity, to squish the Roadrunner and have a tasty, like <laughs> everything. And that, to, again, that, that it's, maybe that's just the engineering part of me is I'm wired for the applicability of the hard math, but that definitely helped a lot. So I'd asked it actually because I think if we as engineers and mathematicians are going to communicate, you know, learning how each other looks at the world. So for instance, on my side, the reason I'm a mathematician and not an engineer is physics. I mean, I'm talking high school physics. Yeah, I can do the math. And it nothing clicked until I got to functional analysis and studied operator theory. And then all of Newtonian physics became a special case of that. That is the stupidest way for physics to make sense. It's true. <laughs> that wouldn't be the Euler-Lagrange equation. So for whatever reason, not until I, the further abstract I got, and then the real world is just a special case of <laughs> whatever's in my head. <laughs> I feel I the same way. That's totally lost me. I tried to read that theoretical minimum. So what do you need to know to understand physics book? And this was exactly the point where I was like, I'm no longer in Kansas. So one thing that I've found is the ability, like the communication between pure mathematicians and engineers, I think the gulf has been getting wider. And part of it, I mean, there's lots of different reasons for it. Part of it is, you know, we think very differently. We both look at the world very differently. And then some of it is I, on, our, on my side, I admit sometimes we just get in our own head and go scurry off, close the office door and tell everyone not to bother us for the next five years while we come up with something and then wonder why nobody's applying what we're doing. Like, well, because you went off for five years and aren't talking to anyone on the other side of what you were inspired by. And I guess that got to the tweet thread that I made is this communication stopped for whatever reason. You know, I don't even see professors of mathematics very often talking to professors in the engineering department when I was in academia. I mean, you know, why? You know, we can't even talk across academic departments. How are we going to talk across research in the private sector? And then this huge gulf happens. And then we sit there, you know, 30 years later, wondering why nobody funds mathematics anymore, because we all forgot each other existed and in some sense stopped caring. That was kind of the root of the thread I had 
put on Twitter is some mathematicians, myself included, can be kind of frustrated if we're always meet us halfway really means me doing 99% of the work to catch everyone up on mathematics that they are proud to hate. Yeah, if I good way to make sure you're alone at a party is to tell people you're a mathematician for a living. Oh gosh, I hated math. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I can explain that. The problem is that not a single math teacher was ever able to tell me, you will use this thing there. And there's two sides to that. From the math, I've heard mathematicians complain about always having to do that. Like as in, we're always having to justify our existence that if we're not applied, then we're useless. And I understand that side of it. On your end, I try to have some sympathy to that because you guys look at the world not abstractly. So you guys care if you're like, wait a minute, instead of us saying that, oh, well, your problem's just a special case of this abstract thing, what we should be doing is saying, this thing that you're seeing can be explained using this mathematics which can also be taken to lots of these other places as well. And now you can begin to appreciate kind of the power of, I hate to use the word abstraction because that seems to be a networking buzzword. I mean abstraction in a mathematical sense. The real abstraction. Yeah, I try to be careful with my language. So I think there's a lot of frustration on both sides where mathematicians are sick of having to like, yeah, well, if it's not applicable to me next quarter, I don't care. No, it's not that. From my perspective, There were always people that seemed to be doing things because the things looked beautiful to them. I Yes, that's true. There were a few people, very rare. Now I remember like two professors from university. No one ever, let's say in high school, was able to do that. They would say, well, in real life, I think it was optimization with whatever algorithms we were using to get to the minimum point of some function. And they would say, well, you know, for example, this is used to cut wood in optimum way to get the most planks out. Or this can be used, you know, as you place uh, different shapes on the fabric, you know, the actual fabric, to maximize the use of the fabric to make clothes. And it was like, oh, this makes sense. I think there's also this business where I know for me, it's very hard for me to get just to get the right answer to a math problem. Like I can set it up and understand how to do it. But then when I actually come to calculation, I feel like a total dolt. Oh, it's okay. Professionals do too. (laughs) That's my personal problem with probability and statistics. Yes, exactly. I mean, I can find three answers to a certain problem and all three seem correct. So that's a pretty classic problem in something like combinatorics. Exactly. Which is pretty much the art, the science of counting things. The little bit of that sort of stuff that I've taught at the university level, because students would get frustrated about that too. Check your assumptions. If your problem is not well-defined, and I don't mean that in like a, yeah, 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 we all know what we're talking about. I mean, there is a mathematical definition of being well-defined and well-put, then there is only a right answer. So what that tells me, if you're having trouble coming up, if you're coming up with several different answers that make sense, your problem isn't well-defined. And that's the hardest part of mathematics. That's the hardest part of anything. I mean, engineers have to do it too, right? What problem am I actually trying to solve? And defining that well can make all the difference. For me, it seems, I'm not sure it seems, that I have a problem with what you said previously. What is really independent? 
So, you know, as mathematicians, we define things and we define things very rigorously. If one article that I wrote on my site was what I've commonly heard in the private sector is the interchangeable use of the terms independent and uncorrelated. And that's generated some confusion. Independent has a definition, meaning there's a couple of equivalent definitions, but the nicest way to say it is that the problem, if I have two events, A and B, they're independent. If information about one occurring does not affect the probability of the other one occurring. In other words, stated mathematically, the probability that A given B is simply just the probability of A. We don't care what happened to B. So think of flipping two coins. If I flip a quarter once and it lands heads or tails, it doesn't matter if it landed heads or tails. When I go to flip the second coin, the probability of it being heads or tails has not changed. If that weren't the case, and if I got heads, that somehow changed the probability of the second coin being heads or tails, those events are no longer independent. We would call them dependent. Hopefully that's a good explanation. Uncorrelated is a little bit different. That's basically taking a measure of correlation that equals zero. It is possible to have two events that are completely dependent and yet be uncorrelated. So mathematicians have defined things very, very carefully. And people like I've spent weeks making sure that a definition that I've created means what I want it to mean and is consistent and well-defined. The problem is when it starts to filter out to the application side, the subtleties get a little bit lost. And that's how you end up with something like, oh, it's uncorrelated. It must be independent. No, it's not. Those are two very, very different words. And that's just one example. Well, I give you props because, you know, it's not very often that you get an email from Fred Baker correcting you on (laughs) terms too, right? Because I think he sent you an email in regards to buffers and cues and the in the one on TCP, I mm-hmm. think I remember reading that one. So, and for those that don't know, Fred was ITF. Wasn't he chair, Russ? Yeah, or? he was chair of the ITF for a while. And one of the people who helped kind of invent the entire quality of service realm. Right. Yeah, he was the guy behind Wade's Bear Queuing. I still remember that presentation. Cisco Live 93 or so. And that's true. But- he, did, he did correct me on my use of terms that I did not have that fully... I was not using it by its correct definition, and that should have been corrected. Yeah, he, it was great that you posted that stuff up there. It was sort of awesome to, to sort of flip through that. I mean, Fred goes back a ways for me because he actually worked for my dad's company way back in the early days. So uh, he's known me since I was running around in, you know, diapers sort of thing, <laughs> which is probably more information that people need to know. Ever. I was going to say, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. I do appreciate he was actually willing to, you know, comment on a sure. no-name mathematician's website. No, no, he's pretty cool that way. He's a very approachable individual. That's awesome. I always found it amusing for me how much math replays itself over and over in different disciplines. So my formal education, at least from a degree perspective, is civil engineering and sort of specialized in, in deep foundation design and, and things like that. But I also had to take plenty of water and, uh, you know, for water distribution systems, you had to work on all of that. And I just remember going through all of the equations for flow control and everything else. And I got around to networking. I'm like, oh, these are all the same equations. <laughs> same constraints. I was like, oh, it's pretty much the same math. I mean, there's obviously differences in terms of how it's applied, but it was just sort of funny to see like, oh, okay, that's how that stuff works. So I was like, all right, I, I sort of get what they're doing. You are probably the only one because we don't get it. We're just guessing. <laughs> it's Just think of it this way. You need to fit X amount of sewage down a pipe. And so that's most of the internet trying to fit. <laughs> <laughs> Ed, the only difference is that we can drop our switch and you don't want to drop yours. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not getting into the sewage enough to figure out what I want to prioritize. 
Well, isn't that just filtration? Yes, settlement tanks. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> There's flock tanks, so you can flocculate stuff to get things to settle out to the bottom. You want me to go into more about how you actually handle a sewage system? <laughs> I started out actually intending to be a chemist and was really interested in water treatment before I switched to mathematics. Yeah, there's all sorts of things, suspended solids, and how do you can actually control flow rates in order to get suspended solids to drop out in the right order, and like there, yeah, all sorts of things that are very interesting. That's weighted red, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to networking. Back to networking and math, right? We are the plumbers of the IT world. We are. The one thing that I think we all keep forgetting is that math is way more than just calculus and statistics and probability. Yes. Which is what everyone thinks about when you say math. There's the whole graph theory and combinatorics and decoding theory and all that. You guys have done probably uh, logic design, right? So you've looked at um, like Boolean arithmetic or you've created logic diagrams. Some of us probably did. Yeah, we are old enough. <laughs> okay, I'm trying to come up with other ones. A popular one probably in the 90s was game theory. So things like Nash equilibrium, that kind of thing. It's very popular in the social science world. Other branches that, I mean, of course, there's differential equations, which generalizes into things like dynamics. If you want to get really heavy, you can start looking into thing, you know, number theory. Number theory is just is a theoretical, we'll call it theoretical cryptography to make it more palatable, that's going to be concerned with, well, more than just primality, you know, whether really large numbers are prime or not, but it's essentially the study of numbers in general. Something that generalizes past even probability is there's kind of a split among mathematicians. You're either what we call an analyst or an algebraist. It used to be you were a continuous mathematician or a discrete mathematician, but now we kind of look at it as you're either an analyst or an algebraist. I'm an analyst by training. So calculus is baby analysis. Your real and mathematical analysis is all of the theory behind why calculus works. So why is the mean value theorem true, right? Some of those baby proofs that you saw in calculus, well, what happens if instead of integrating dx, we integrated d function of x? What if we integrated d function of x where the function is no longer continuous? What if we start really messing with integration and integrate with respect to a random process? That's stochastic calculus, which shows up a lot in so sense that'll make everyone happy. Stochastic calculus is huge in finance, huge. A lot of the development of stochastic calculus was done for portfolio allocation and finance. Your famous Black-Scholes formula is based on stochastic differential equations. So there, uh, information theory is an applied, you know, kind of discrete math, which kind of mixes your your probability, those things I would think network engineers are quite familiar with is some of the concepts in information theory, which leads to things like coding theory. Coding theory generalized gets into abstract algebra. So when we talk about what are good codes, we want the code words to be far apart. Well, what do you mean by that? What That means you need to find some kind of distance metric on it. So we start to define these things. And well, what if we start just studying metrics themselves? There's a lot more to mathematics than just your calculus, your coding theory, your combinatorics. And like I said, I didn't want to make this a huge math lecture because especially it's going to get into topics in mathematics that most people probably aren't going to care about. The height of generalization is category theory and those people are nuts. If any category theorists listen to this, I love you all. <laughs> I'm friends with a lot of category theorists, but man, there's a point where it's too abstract for me. 
Another thing you'll see in complex analysis is let's do calculus on complex things that will feed you into applications like control theory and avionics rely on that heavily. So just as a kind of general survey. So control theory would also be dynamically adjusting networks, right? Yes. Yes, there's applications there too. And underneath some of the applications or the uses of control theory, the math that makes that work is a lot of complex analysis that there are certain problems that were once intractable in the real space that we would call it as in space of real numbers. For example, if I told you, give me the square root of minus three, and all you knew about were real numbers, you would tell me it's impossible, right? You can prove that it's impossible. There's no real answer to the square root of minus three. But if I define a complex number i that I define to be the square root of minus one, well, now you can tell me that you know the square root of minus three is just i on the square root of three, the real square root of three, right? It's i times the real value of square root of three. And we can take that a little bit further. There are certain problems in calculus that were completely intractable. If you tried to apply multivariate calculus to certain problems, it was provably impossible to find an answer unless you made a certain kind of transformation into the complex plane, in which case now your arguments are actually almost trivial. And otherwise, control theory wouldn't be possible without that kind of mathematics. Those problems are completely intractable using the calculus that you would have taken, like maybe your first or second year of college. So that does that get back to all the things that we learned first time through of like special sets, like discrete sets and things like that? Uh, sort of. I mean, complex analysis is basically calculus on complex things. So what happens if I integrate a function of complex values? Well, complex numbers aren't really numbers. They're tuples, right? They're isomorphic to an ordered pair. So you're operating on a little bitty vector now. You're not iterating an integration. You're operating on an object that consists of a tuple now. So some of your, we had to generalize the notion of what we mean by integration. You know, do you integrate? The, now the path of integration matters, like your multivariate calculus, right? The path of integration actually matters. You're not just moving along a line anymore. So we had to develop further mathematics to understand that. But thanks to making things a little bit more complicated at the outset, we were able to simplify some problems that were previously an arithmetic nightmare or impossible. So that's kind of my brief. Even though some mathematics seems complicated, Sometimes there's a good reason to move into something that looks a little more complicated because complicated problems can look simpler in complicated spaces. And then you just map back once you have the solution. Okay, Ross. And now we know why the load metric in EIGRP never worked well, right? That's right. And actually, this kind of maps back to complexity theory, right? And the whole concept of sometimes you've got to start with something a more complex base to make the overall network simple, even though we never think about that. Did I drop and lose you guys? Nope. I just didn't have an appropriate response. We are just deep in thought. <laughs> We're just deep in thought. Sorry, I was making sure I didn't drop off completely or I was just an idiot and I didn't understand what just happened, but which is probably the latter is probably true. Well, I guess we are all like shell-shocked now. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to digest what Rachel told us. <laughs> I mean, I can easily cope with people talking about Linux internals, but this is hard. <laughs> I didn't want to like preach it at anybody. That's no, no, uh, that's perfectly fine. It's just so out of my comfort zone that you know it's hard. I think what's good about the conversation, though, is you know how much of your day 
for the jobs that we do, do we actually spend thinking about this sort of stuff, right? And flexing a muscle that you don't use all that often and having someone who's there to sort of push you along is a good thing, I think. Because there's certainly, I mean, certainly, the, well, for those, I mean, well, Russ has written plenty of books, Ivan has too. Chris, have you written them? No. Okay, well, you'll get tortured later, I'm sure. But for those of us who've written books, just flexing for the language side to be able to communicate correctly about what you're trying to do and then having a really good editor who is beating you over the head you learn certain sets of skills around that. I think math falls in the same category in many ways because you need someone who's a like, yep. good editor, a good guide to help make sure that you're doing things well in that particular area. And I think we've fallen down as an industry in terms of having that sort of relationship there. For those of us that have written books or articles, a lot of articles, and you have someone reviewing your stuff, it's like, hey, this doesn't make any sense. What were you thinking? I'm like, well, I wrote it at two in the morning. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, is yeah, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> Two might be related at what time I ate, I wrote it versus whether or not it makes sense. Right, right. <laughs> Problem we all have is that, well, some of us appreciate that we need math, but it's like trying to climb Mount Everest. You know, it's there, you know, it's very hard to reach, but you don't have a clue how to do the first step because the first step should be, you know, just climb the local hills to get in shape. So how do we cross these gaps? How do we find math that is approachable enough so that we can make some sense out of that and make it useful? That's where kind of we all get to talk. That's what I'm kind of hoping people take from the webinars I give, that you may not have seen coherent systems analysis, although Ed, if you're a civil engineer, you probably have. <clears throat> if you haven't seen it, you know, you can't be expected to know it. And one webinar on coherent systems analysis is not going to make you an expert in reliability. It's just not. But what it is doing is, oh, wow, that's an interesting way of looking at it. You know, maybe three people that watch that webinar is like, man, for whatever reason, looking at my network through the lens of the way a lot of physical engineers tend to look at their systems of components makes a whole lot more sense to me. And maybe other people are like, I've at least seen something different. It's kind of a way to climb a baby hill in a way that's also interesting. Like, you know, if you are going to learn to climb Mount Everest, and I guess if I'm going to address that, I think that's one reason that engineers tend to run away from mathematics is because maybe you have shades of like really strict or mean math teachers, but I don't think it's fair for us as mathematicians to expect you guys to climb up. That's going to sound really ugly. Um, to climb to where we are. Because you're on one hill, you're on a mountain somewhere, and we're on a mountain somewhere else. And instead of expecting you guys to come down from yours and climb ours, which is a synonym for you should be able to follow along with the talk I give to professional mathematicians, which is not fair. I think that's where a lot of engineers might get turned off is you get the feeling that we expect you is like, well, why aren't you on top of your workday studying, you know, advanced logic and measure theory and all this other stuff so you can follow along with my beautiful proofs. That's not fair. And some mathematicians seem to not want to work with engineers because, you know, we feel like, well, you should just be able to follow along with the basics. Like, all right, listen, guys, the basics aren't measure theory. The basics are calculus. And you're not willing to reach across the aisle to help. And remember that, okay, we both come from different backgrounds. So that means we get to listen to you guys and say, well, as we try to follow along with all your acronyms, what exactly is it that you're doing that makes sense? So even uh, David's not here, but he showed me a pretty neat demo of something he was working on that was essentially to, you know, as a mathematician, I looked at it and saw the of coloring problem in graph theory. Oh, that. 
but he's still showing me what he's doing and explaining it in his terms. And now we can actually have a conversation about it because I can use that demo or that thing that you're showing me. And now we can actually talk both your terms of engineering and my terms of mathematics on that object or demo and both meet in the middle. I think it's not necessarily fair to imagine yourselves as needing to climb Everest, which means study more math. I don't really advocate study math in the same sense that I have. When I tweeted about meeting in the middle, it was about things like that. Knowing just enough, having more of a breadth so that you've seen some graph theory, you've seen some queuing theory, enough to know that the problem tends to address this and, hey, I can actually solve it myself or, yikes, this got kind of complicated. It might be worth calling a mathematician in. From my end, I might be working on something that seems theoretical, but from talking to you guys, maybe it was inspired by something you said, gosh, this seems like this really general problem. And when I'm done with it, I'll come back to you and say, I think I've solved that thing that your problem reminded me of. What do you think? Do you find this useful? I mean, we both get to meet in the middle, go our separate ways to solve problems, meet back in the middle. It's just this constant meeting in the middle for I'm not coming up with more synonyms for that. The challenge for that, though, is having common language. And I've seen this again and again and again and again over time, you know, going back to voice engineering, going to, um, multilingual, I speak I don't know, three, four languages, something. Being able to just have when you use a certain word in a certain way, even the words well-defined has a certain connotation to you that I think that that's part of the challenge of coming into the middle is to make sure that we're actually speaking to some degree the same language. I think what's useful is, so for me, just taking some of the base courses around some of this is being able to identify when it happens in front of you. That's the challenge, right? Of sort of saying like, oh, I recognize that. That's something I learned before. This is how it's applied. And being able to then take that set of information that you have and be able to communicate that to others to say, this is that math problem. <laughs> this yeah, is that set of right. math problems that we're dealing with. How do we yeah. transpose this to something else? And being able to understand and articulate that to other people has value. In other words, of saying like, that's great. Your vendor just told you X, Y, or Z about what this is. But in reality, right, from the math side, that doesn't necessarily hold true. It's a way to hold people accountable about what's happening versus like the marketing jumbo that we all get to hear on, on that side, right? that break side? That's really what we are missing. We don't realize that we have a problem because we usually don't act as engineers. We're just consumers of white papers. Right. And second, even if we realize we have a problem, we don't realize that there are solutions out there for this problem because we've never seen something similar before. Because, you know, honestly, I don't care if I have a queuing theory problem to solve it myself. I just need to know that this is a problem that has been solved and that I know people that can solve it for me if I need it to be solved. And one nice thing about being less grounded in practicality is that I'm not limited by restraints. Sometimes the restraints that you put on yourself as engineers, you've forgotten that they're artificial. And when I come in and look at something, I don't believe in restraint. I just kind of go with it. And so sometimes if I was like, oh, you know, this really just reminds me of a problem from finance or, you know, this is really similar to a fluid dynamics problem or actually, you know, they've actually, we could actually take an application from theoretical physics to solve this because this mathematics is exactly the same. I'm not bound by restraint. And so, I don't know, I think the term is an Archimedean viewpoint, which like I said, on the one hand, it's like being farsighted. I can't see anything that's right up in front of my face. 
but I can see 20 years down the road. So the constant dialogue, I try to read, you know, in addition to my own theoretical math books, I read books on engineering. I like talking to engineers because I need to at least know enough about what you use certain things for, because that's going to help. I mean, it helps my research and it helps me make connections across other fields. You know, one actually really nice example is the chemists figured out if you look at a molecule, sometimes a really complicated molecule or molecular orbitals in chemistry. And I want to decide if I've got two molecules and they're oriented a little bit differently, are they the same molecule or are they not? If you want to figure that out, if I were just making a physical model of that, I'd make the physical model, I'd turn them every which way, I'd try to figure out how to make one fit into the other. And that's kind of a huge pain in the butt. Alternatively, what chemists figured out after talking to mathematicians is if I label all of my atoms in my molecule and look at them as a bit of a graph, map the graph to what's known in algebra as a group theory, basically the notion of a permutation group, I can study the structure of the permutation group, which is actually really simple. Like what happens when I just take the numbers one through N and I permute them a whole bunch? No big deal. I rearrange them and I study that structure. It turns out that is completely analogous to the symmetries on molecules, completely analogous. And one is far more simple to study than the other. And thanks to chemists and mathematicians talking, that actually had pretty good implications for things like spectroscopy. That's kind of how I view a cooperation between the two. The mathematicians had to listen to the chemists and learn a little bit of chemistry. And the chemists had to, you know, there's books, I have one that's on group theory for chemists. They had to learn a little bit of group theory. It's not fair to expect them to know, you know, the really advanced stuff. They had to learn a little bit. And thanks to them knowing just a little bit while keeping their own lanes, to use a buzzword, stay in your lane kind of thing, they were able to collaborate. I guess my point in illustrating that was there's a lot of very practical examples of collaborations between either scientists and engineers, or I view it almost as like a little spectrum. Mathematicians are at one end, and then you have kind of your scientists and theoretical engineers kind of one step forward on the practicality scale. Then you have your practicing engineers, which would be like the private sector. And we all have to talk to one another, even though sometimes I'm going to work on things that are completely useless to you we still at least have to talk and make sure that there remains an overlap between mathematics and the sciences or mathematics and engineering or the sciences and engineering. Once those spheres become separated, I think a lot of things end up in trouble. And that's to me, since we all dislike marketing, that's where marketing kind of comes in and starts to ruin everything because we're not talking any longer. And so everything just becomes hype and you don't really see as much true progress anymore. Yeah, I'll correct a bit of that. I don't dislike marketing. I dislike what marketing has enabled for our industry in particular around what they do. I would say that as a general rule of thumb, and this is probably true for the tech industry overall, marketing inherently isn't anything bad. I think it's uh, losing your voice in terms of capabilities to be prescriptive and wanting to simplify all the time and wanting to get the message sharper is, while valuable in certain areas, is probably not as valuable around the subject matter that we're talking about. I think that's part of the challenge that marketing folks go through. And probably the other side is we're not meeting them in the middle either. <laughs> that's true. Difference so, between engineers and business is in itself another gulf. Right. It's both sides. Uh, much to the chagrin of, I'm sure, <laughs> folks. But it's, it's true, right? If the marketing folks could work with us and collaborate, we got better stuff. But in terms of output, I think we would all be happier. But the reality is that isn't 
always necessarily how things work. And speed sometimes consumes accuracy and data integrity and things like that for the value of getting something to market. Having been in a tech marketing role, if we don't keep them informed, they will come up with their own stuff. It's definitely yeah. on us. Yeah, they will fill the vacuum. So your point is is 100% accurate is marketing is not inherently bad, but they have a job to do and they will do it with or without our input. Right, exactly right. Okay, so let's wrap it up right here. Rachel, if someone wants to find you and get in touch with you and send you an interesting problem that he thinks could be solved with some advanced math, how can they get in touch with you? For you know, non-Twitter-sized inquiries, there's a contact form on my website. So again, that's, that's the, the mathcitadel.com. There's a contact form there. My email is simply my first initial R, my last name, Trailer, T-R-A-Y-L-O-R. It's, you know, Taylor with an R and also not trailer like tractor trailer. I swear, like my name was not mispronounced or had an issue like before I got married. I get married and I have my name's, nobody gets my name right. Then at mathcitadel.com, that's the email, first initial R and then full last name trailer at mathcitadel.com. Otherwise, you can certainly tweet at me at mathpocalypse, either via DM or, or whatever, and I'm happy to respond that way as, as well. And as we usually don't have Ed and Russ on the show, Ed, how can people find you? I'm really simple, at ehorley, so it's E-H-O-R-L-E-Y on Twitter. I occasionally blog on my blog at howfunky.com. And uh, you can hear me on other podcasts too. So I, I do the IPP6 Buzz podcast over on the Packet Pushers. So if you want to hear about my V6 rantings, just go over there and check that out. And I've been on the Network Collective talking V6 too with Russ. So. And everyone should listen to the IPP6 Buzz. It's really a good one. Apart from the one with SDN, you got me hooked there and you didn't mention SDN throughout the whole podcast. <laughs> and now that you mentioned the Network Collective, Russ, you have something to do with that, right? Yep. You can always find me at rule11.tech or you can find me at the Network Collective. Yeah, I tend to co-host the Network Collective every now and again. We just actually, this isn't released yet, but we just recorded Dave Farber. I don't know if anybody knows that is, but he's the grandfather of the internet on the history of networking side. So it should be a really cool recording when that comes out. Oh, I love your history recordings. And Chris, you don't have a podcast, but if anyone wants to know how to automate a hotel room, you're the guy to go to, right? I am the guy. Bluetooth is your friend. Yeah, at Netman Chris on Twitter. And I'm actually going to be shutting down here in the next couple of weeks. I have vacation to finish off. And believe it or not, on topic, I'm actually going through a like six course Coursera probability machine learning. So I get out the end and figure out that it's all crap, apparently. Oh, yeah, I didn't mean to <laughs> slam that. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's all good. It is always good to have another educated view on all this stuff. I'm going to go through it anyways. Need to get that language and the math chops back up. So thanks a million for being with us, Rachel. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you all for being here. And you've been listening to Software Gone Wild. And if you want to find more episodes, just go to ibspace.net slash podcast and start exploring. Thank you. And we'll be back. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.